okay. That's fine, that's fine. Oh, thank you. Good morning again. <laughs> Happy Sabbath once again, everyone. Happy Sabbath, that's loud. Thank you. All right. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in the worship service this morning. And I'd like to thank you for you. Am I audible? Perfect. So I want to thank you a few more, um, especially the AV team. I think they're finding it uh, challenging every week, um, especially Elder Kelly and his team. Daniel, Ryan, thank you for supporting us. And we admit that, you know, without your help, the live stream would not be uh, happening at this moment. For those who are watching us online um, and those who are in the auditorium today, don't forget to say hi to Isabel. Uh, I think that's one of the personal we've been <laughs> uh, overlooking. I think she's the one who is on the, drive, on the wheels, uh, ensuring that the live stream is happening without any hiccups. So, don't forget to say hi. If you forget, then next week we'll not have live stream. <laughs> so, Isabel, thank you. Um, for those who came in late, I just want to repeat an announcement that we missed. Um, but before we get into the announcement, I'd like to thank uh, Yanwa, Sherwin, Jackie, Tomming, Helen, and Esther. Uh, you know why? So there's actually a makeover happening for the children Sabbath school classes. Uh, the work is not yet done, that's in progress, but they spent a significant amount of time yesterday cleaning up and preparing the room for the children. Um, so I want to say thank you for, for the team and those who were helping. And if anybody is willing to lend some support in making the room makeover, uh, you can reach out to either Sherwin or Yanwa. Um, they, they're here. If you don't know them, uh, try to find out who they are. Um, and the announcement is this. The last three rows to my left is specially reserved for VIPs, the future of this church. So those who come in late, those who sneak in late, uh, make sure that you don't occupy those seats, including parents, especially if your children are more than 10 years old, you are not entitled to sit there. So please leave those seats empty for our kids so that they can have some uh, peaceful time. And I hope you understand, and thank you for cooperating. Could I ask you to join with me for a word of prayer before we get in? <laughs> Heavenly Father, you're such a risk taker, God. Who am I? that you let me to stand on this pulpit today. But I come to you humbly, asking your help to speak to our hearts that this message brings us closer to you, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. But I've entitled today's sermon as No Greater Love. Um, how many of you have best friends? You, good to know. 
Amen. Amen. That's good to know. Children, do you have best friends? Yes. How many of you do you have? I can't hear you. Only one? All right. Some say two, only one. How many of you have a couple of best friends? Okay. How many of you have a few of best friends? Okay, none. Interesting. <laughs> now, a question. Who is a best friend to you? God. Amen. Can somebody say amen to that? Amen. <laughs> amen. God is his best friend. Now, in this context, friends are those who are connected to us on social media, whom we never met for years. Or is this someone who will be honest with you at all times? Or is this someone who will be doing anything for you? Or is a best friend someone who stick with you through your thicks and thins? Or is your best friend someone who doesn't hold your mistakes and your shortcomings against you? Who is your best friend? Well, I had um, a social media account where I had some 800 plus friends. 95% of them I never even know. And are those the friends that we quote as best friends? Bible actually addresses this very kind of friendship, which is found in John 15, verse 13. If you could turn with me to John 15 and verse 13. And the version that I have reads, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's what the Bible says. And do you agree that the best friends are those who can lay down their life for their friends? Now tell me, how many of you have best friends? Okay, Janita says she does. I'm sure every one of us in our lives have a few of those people that we can consider them as our best friends. Um, Jonathan was such a friend to David. Today we'll spend some time in looking at the friendship of Jonathan and David. Uh, this is going to be a story, but not like how Adenia narrated, nor Uncle Michael narrated last, oh, a couple of weeks ago. But we'll see the story of Jonathan and David. Now, why I chose this is because I was looking at some of the unsung heroes in the Bibles, and Jonathan stands first. He's overlooked, and he's forgotten, but yet he has a very important lesson to teach. And Jonathan was such a friend to David. Now, what if I told you that this friendship story of Jonathan and David actually foreshadows God's love towards humankind. Now, we'll sort of use these verses as our launching pad. 1 Samuel 18, verses 1 to 4. 1 Samuel, verses 18. Sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 to 4. We sort of use these as a launch point and we'll try to back up from there. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took, Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant. 
because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, we'll come back to these four verses in a few minutes, but before that, we sort of have to recap the whole story so that we have the context of what we are discussing today, right? And we have to go through 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 23, to understand the context of this. How many of you are ready? 1 Samuel chapter 8 to 23, and we're going to read all of those verses. Provided we have time. <laughs> not really. Uh, we'll not be reading all of 1 Samuel 8 to 23 today, but we'll try to see a condensed version of these 16 chapters. Um, I'll try my level best to keep this short. Now, Israel at this time was greatly influenced by its surrounding kingdoms. They were so much influenced that they forgot the leading of God. And in fact, they demanded the last prophet at that time, Samuel, to appoint them a king. Now, Israelites thought that having a king would solve their problems. It would give them security, that it would give them military power. You know, God didn't reject their ask. You know, for those who question whether God answers your prayer or not, here is a proof. Now, this ask was against God's will. In fact, the verse says that they didn't reject the prophet, but they rejected the God himself. But yet, Israelites got what they asked. God answers prayers. And guess what? It didn't take very long time after Saul became king because Israel got into a pretty desperate kind of situation. Right? This young kingdom was in a significant pain. They were experiencing humiliation. They were facing domination by Philistines, and they were very oppressive. Philistines humiliated and intimidated the people of Israel for years. Now, Israel was in despair because they were experiencing oppression from the Philistines. And now, in this state of Philistines is where we see the introduction of Jonathan, our forgotten, unsung hero. Samuel, 1 Samuel 13 verse 2 says, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, 200 were with Saul in Michmash, and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away every man to his tent. Well, not a powerful introduction to our hero. Right? It just says, Saul chose 3,000 men and he gave 1,000 to Benjamin. There were no details about uh, Jonathan, unlike his father Saul. When Saul was introduced, there was a history of where he came from and how he was chosen. But for Jonathan, it wasn't the case. But if you notice, this verse poses a significant question. You know, when we are heading to a war, we need the chief of the army. And the chief of the army at this time was Abner, uncle of Saul. And he is missing from the action. Now we don't know why Saul had given thousand members or thousand of them to be with Jonathan. Maybe Jonathan was too young. Maybe he was afraid of his son's life. Or maybe he thought Jonathan was brave enough to fight the battle. We really don't know. 
but the next verse sort of gives us a hint what sort of character Jonathan is and why Saul had given thousand members to be with Jonathan. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, let the Hebrews hear. He just pushed the button of destruction. And as a result of this attack, Philistines gather their armies to retaliate. You know, why would they keep quiet? Some young, inexperienced lad attacks the garrison. Nobody would keep quiet, and they gather their army to retaliate. Now we can read this from verses 5 to 7. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, people as the sand which is on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth Now That's the display of force. Now let's see what Israel does. When the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed. Then the people hid in caves, in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. To make things worse, some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Now that's quite contrasting, or, you know, that's, that's how a nation would react if somebody is coming to attack. Definitely, Israelites were outnumbered, but the author of this book plays it smart. You know, he doesn't expose the emotions of Saul. You know, when, when people are running around and when people are hiding in caves, rocks, of course, the king would have the same emotions. He would have been going through same set of emotions. Uh, but Bible doesn't say any of that. All it says is, as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal. Now, on the day of the battle, you know, we, we see there were 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, people as the sand. And this represents the army of Philistines. And for Israelites, there were 3,000 men whom Saul chosen. Now, we really don't know if those 3,000 men stayed together with Saul and Jonathan. But they were definitely outnumbered. And what weapons did this young nation have? Technically, nothing. Technically nothing. The Bible says, on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan, his son. Only Saul and Jonathan had maybe spears or sword. Other than this, nobody else in the camp had any sort of weapons. Now, how can you imagine a young nation can stand up against a force of army that is coming to beat them. Philistines thought that it would be an easy walk for them to capture King Saul and the Israelites. But guess what? A young lad who most probably was in his teens does a death-defying stunt that no one in either Israel or Philistines could have ever imagined. This fearless young chap decides to take the responsibility of fighting back the oppressive Philistines. Who did he have? Just his armor bearer, 
Now this still poses another question. Saul was mentioned and the crown prince was mentioned. The army of the chief or the chief of the army is missing in the action again. Where did he go? Anyways, the weapons what Jonathan and Saul had was just either a sword or a spear. Is that so? Then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Now can you see the weapon what Jonathan had? It was not a spear. It was not a sword. Bible says that the Lord was Jonathan's weapon. Jonathan was able to see the will of God. He believed that God will deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. Now, Jonathan is well aware that he is definitely outnumbered, but that didn't discourage him. He knew that this wouldn't make any difference at all. He is nowhere a match to fight such a large camp. But he put his trust in God. He knew that God was his weapon and those two was very well adequate for God to work through. Just want to read this verse again. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Can someone say Amen to that? Can you see how much faith this young courageous boy had in God? Parents, this teaches an important lesson. How are you raising your children? Imagine a young boy putting his faith in God. He had no weapons except the faith and the trust in God. And trusting the Lord in faith makes the whole difference. Are you also fighting? The promise is the Lord will work for you. All you have to do is bend on your knees and trust the Lord blindly. Now Israelites won the battle that day simply because a young boy had his faith in God. Because of his willingness to take the initiative in order to see what God might do in using him to deliver his people from their oppression. And after that victory, Israel enjoyed a time of freedom from oppression. But that didn't last long. King Saul turned back to his old ways and the nation once again fell away from a courageous walk with God. Philistines came back. They began to oppress Israelites again. Now, it was during this period of oppression with Philistines that the most famous battle between Philistines and the Israelites took place. Introduction of our second hero in this story. And it's the battle that you're most familiar with. Goliath, the giant soldier of Philistine, was challenging the Israelites' army to fight with him one-on-one. -on -one. And nobody from the Israelites stepped forward. Unfortunately, 
the commander of the Israelites' army is missing in the action again. No one came forward, absolutely no one, willing to stand up against the Philistines. Not even Jonathan, who fought the Philistines' army single-handedly. He didn't step up to the plate, quite contrasting. We saw how bravely Jonathan fought the Philistines' army a few chapters earlier, but now Jonathan refuses to step up. Israelites needed him the most now. He was the hero who brought them out of the oppression from Philistines first time. They were looking for him, and Jonathan goes silent. Maybe Jonathan was thinking in his heart, I can't keep doing this. I'm tired of this. I can't be the only one who can climb the cliffs. I can't be the only one willing to face the giants. For whatever reason, Jonathan didn't step up. At least for that moment, it seems that Jonathan lost his heart. And he stood in the sidelines like all the other soldiers. So God doesn't run out of heroes. David, another young lad, comes out of nowhere to volunteer even though it wasn't his business at all. He volunteered to face the giant. He was inexperienced. He never fought battles. But that didn't make him to step back. He volunteered to fight against the giant. How? 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 43 to 46 tells how he gave up to fight the giant. So the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Wow. Can you see the striking similarity between David and Jonathan's faith? Now, we know for sure that Jonathan's voice was mute at this time. But immediately after David fought the battle with Goliath, he realized that there was a voice that he can resonate with, a voice that sang the same song that he sang earlier. You come to me with a sword, with a spear, and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. Jonathan's heart revives again. He finds a friend whose heartbeat was like his, who had faith like his faith. Jonathan and David becomes one of the greatest examples of friendship. We all know this. In fact, 1 Samuel 18 and 1 records it this way. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. It's a very strong word, knit together. Souls knitting together is a very strong word. But someone was not happy. Saul was very angry and saying, displeased, and the saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David 10,000, and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul, I, David, from that day, fouled. You see, David saved Israelites from what seemed to be a definite loss. 
He saved Israelites again from their misery, from their slavery, probably from their oppression too. And we can read in the Bible that Saul at least tried to kill David 16 times. 16 times he tried to kill David. You know, he didn't even spare his son, the crown prince Jonathan. He didn't like the fact that Jonathan and David were friends. You know, Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan. He said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Strong words. Jealous. Hatedness. Saul knew that his kingdom wouldn't last for a very long time, as long as David lives. Let's think for a moment. Now, the legitimate successor was Jonathan. Now, technically, if someone has to kill David, it should be Jonathan. But in the story, we see it's Saul who is behind David and not Jonathan. We don't know why. <laughs> David was seen as an enemy of Jonathan. by his father Saul. But you know, the Bible records that they were best friends. And in fact, Jonathan goes on to save the lives of David a few times. You know, this teaches us four important lessons. You know, great friendship requires great commitment. And it involves great risk. And it should reflect great love. Most importantly, great friendships should include God. Does any of your friends exhibit these qualities? Or do you have these qualities in you? Now, this is the gist of these 16 chapters, a shorter version. But we are not done yet. Going back to verses 1 to 4, 1 Samuel 18. Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, who is David? He was a shepherd, a young-looking boy. And Jonathan, the crown prince, the warrior, the legitimate successor to the throne, he goes seeking friendship of David, not the other way around. Now, imagine if we have to make friends with others, we look for social status, don't we? But Jonathan doesn't do that. He goes seeking the friendship of David. Do you have such a friend? Can we find such a friend is the question. And the answer is yes. Absolutely yes. Jesus Christ is our friend. He came to this sinful world seeking the friendship 
of this undeserving humankind. Like how Jonathan sought the friendship of David. No longer do I call you servants, for the servants does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. John 15, 15, a scripture reading for today. Forgetting his heavenly place, his heavenly position, Christ extended his hands to all of us, the undeserved. He made us as the heirs of his kingdom. In fact, Isaiah 59, 16 and 17 records it this way. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his own arm bought salvation for him and his own righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. Jesus is demonstrating to us how much he loves you and me as a friend. So much so that he was willing to leave heaven to come down to this earth and to die for you and me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He came down, forgetting his heavenly place to die for you and me. Can someone say amen to that? That was a weak amen for a kind of a friend who died for you and me on the cross. But I'll take that. Remember when Jesus went into the wilderness, what did he do? He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. How many of you have friends who can fast 40 days and 40 nights for you? Or can you fast 40 days and 40 nights for your friends? That's how deep it is when you talk about friendships. Jonathan looked David's heart and not his state, status or talent. Jonathan was loyal to David. He knew that David's success was at his expense. But he didn't hold back. We also are undeserved, no authority, but yet Jesus loved us. He came seeking our friendship. As a symbol of friendship, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. Not just a covenant, we read in the Bible that he expresses his love and friendship in the form of giving some gifts to David. The verse reads, and Jonathan took off his robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword, and to his bow and his belt. Now Jonathan encourages David and reaffirms his support for David's future leadership. He strengthened David's faith in God. Jonathan, by this act, was simply telling David that he loves him as much as he loves himself. And everything that he has is David's. Jonathan was giving away his position and authority to his young friend. Now he gave few articles we just read. What significance does these articles play? Are they just merely articles? Or do they have some spiritual lessons for us? What does robe symbolize? We have to go back to 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19 to understand what it symbolizes. If you could, please turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19. And the verse reads, Now therefore, 
sorry. First Kings chapter 19, verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shapath, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the twelfth. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. Now, we, we know the story, right? Elijah was running away from Queen Jezebel, and Ahab, for that matter, because he, he does something like what Jonathan did. He goes and he slaughters 400 of Ahab's priests and makes fun of them, mocks them, and eventually Queen gets upset and she's behind Elijah. And he runs away for his life. He had no desire to live. In fact, if you read uh, 19 verse 4, he says, It is enough. Take my life, for I am no better than my father's. That's what Elijah says. He pleads God to take his life away. But God encourages and advises him to groom a successor. And that's where we see Elisha coming into the picture, right? So Elijah reaches the place of Elisha. Bible tells us that Elisha was plowing his field. Uh, we really don't know if Elijah and Elisha know both of them very well. But Elijah goes there. And what does Elijah do? As soon as he saws, as soon as he sees Elisha, he throws a mantle on him. So mantle, some versions read robe, some versions read cloak, some versions read coat, all the same. He throws his robe on Elisha. It simply means that robe signifies or symbolizes God's leading in your life. God's anointing and God's will. By giving the robe to David, Jonathan symbolically tells him that he's under the leading of God. Though Jonathan was the forerunner to become a king, he surrendered to God's will. Roman 8 verse 9 promises that you and I are also covered under this robe. You are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. So the Bible tells us that you and I are covered under this robe. Armor. Scripture frequently employs the imagery of armor as a metaphor for spiritual defense and protection. In fact, in Genesis 15, God prefaces his reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant with the assurance, I am your shield and your very great reward. You know, the armor of God represents the defense we must take in our spiritual lives. The Bible tells us that we are fighting a war against the devil who seeks to destroy us. And as Christians, it is very important for us to understand the severity of this battle. It can be very dangerous when we forget to equip ourselves with the armor of God and allow the enemy to take control in our lives. As for God, his way is perfect. The law is proven. He is the shield to all who trust in him. 2 Samuel 22, 31. Sword. Now if we step back and uh, recap or recollect the story of Goliath and David, you see Goliath was killed using a stone and a sling. All that David had was five stones and a sling in his hand. 
But the verse says that I will take your head off from you. Now, I don't know with what confidence David could say that. We know for sure that David had faith in God. But it's very interesting that he says that he will take his head off. And he goes on to attribute the sword of Goliath then greater than anything else. In 1 Samuel 21, 9, we read, there is none like it, give it to me. You know, when he goes to the priest and he asks for a weapon, he says, I don't have anything except for the sword of Goliath. He says, there's none like it, give it to me. Today, you and I have a powerful sword than this, word of God. Paul puts it in Hebrews 4, 12 this way, for the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If you have this sword with you, your journey in this world will be safe. You can not only fight the devil, but you can fight the flesh, the world using this sword. And without this sword, you and I cannot win. This sword will protect and save us. Jonathan equipped David with his sword, telling him to use this sword not just to save his life, but also to save his fellow brethren from the enemies. The church, this two-edged sword is not only to save ourselves, but should be used to save others also. We come to the final article, belt, signifies serving others. Jonathan cautioned David symbolically by giving his belt to him that he shouldn't be carried away by the position, by the victories, by the wealth that he acquires. But instead, he asks David to humble himself and to serve the Israelites. And the Bible tells it this way, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God. And the Bible records that David served his nation. He was humble enough. He took the advice of his best friend, Jonathan. Jesus Christ also demonstrated this serving nature by washing the foot of his disciples. Right? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Belt symbolizes the serving nature. To humble ourselves. Without serving, we cannot please God. Wherever you are, can you serve others? Are you serving others? Are you serving your God? It's a question. I'm done. Worship team. These articles that Jonathan gave to David was not just a gift. But it was to remind David constantly that his life will not be on a green carpet unless he has these weapons to face them. You see, David's life was not in peace at all. He was running throughout his life. He never stopped running in his life. In 1 Samuel 23, we see some sort of respite. You know, David's life was sort of in a balance. But then if we see in, in the first portion of 1 Samuel 23, he was betrayed by his people. And in the second portion, he was betrayed by the other group of people and Saul comes after him. 
David finds out that Saul is coming after him and he escapes. Can you imagine what would have been going in David's mind? He would have asked, am I worth? Is this worth of running? This is the verse that I want to read and finish. 1 Samuel 23, verse 16. First Samuel chapter 23, verse 16. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. Do you have friends like that? who can strengthen your hands in God. Be that for each other. These articles were not merely a gift. These are weapons that we needed to fight the battle in this world. Can you imagine the pressure of doing ministry? Stress, disappointment, discouragement, you might ask, is it worth to be a Christian? You may say that one day. But how are you going to survive in those moments? We need these weapons. The robe, armor, sword, bow, and belt. We need a friend like Jonathan who can strengthen our hands in God. And we cannot survive this battle without God's mercy mediated towards us. We have to exhort one another daily while it is called today. If you truly love God, and if you truly seek the friendship of God, your soul and the soul of God should knit together like Jonathan and David's soul. Now that's the desire of God. He's seeking your friendship. Are you willing to extend your hands to him? I leave that question with you. friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer heavy trials and temptations 
trouble anywhere We should never be discouraged Take it to the Lord in prayer Can we find a friend so faithful Who will all our sorrow share Jesus knows our every weakness Take it to the Lord in prayer He'll take and shield you. You will find a solace there. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we leave from this place now, may we leave with an assurance that you will strengthen our ways. And may you help us to exhort one another daily while it is called today. May your protection, your love, your guidance, and your care be upon each and every one of us, not just today, but until we see you face to face. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.